Welcome to the Nail Your Nutrition podcast, a podcast focused on training for endurance activity. I'm Sarah, a registered dietitian and toddler mom in the Washington, D.C. area. I write the blog Bucketless Tummy and focus most of my work on running and endurance athletes, as well as merging the principles of sports nutrition with the principles of intuitive eating. And I'm Marita, a sports dietitian and fellow toddler mom in Pensacola, Florida. I work with endurance athletes at my private practice, Eat to Compete. My goal is to help athletes learn to fuel their training with intuitive eating. We are two sports dietitians and moms here to break down the nutrition science to make training more fun and approachable for you. Whether you're a novice athlete, a weekend warrior, a mom trying to fit in a consistent exercise schedule, or a top finisher at big races, we want to help you understand the importance of fueling well. We're so glad to have you here and would appreciate you spreading the word or sharing this episode or podcast with a friend, family member, training partner, coworker, or anyone you would think would enjoy it. If you have a minute, please leave us a review wherever you subscribe to your podcast as that really helps the show. Now let's get to today's episode. This episode is brought to you by our Nail Your Nutrition self-paced fueling course. Whether you're a new or seasoned athlete, the Nail Your Nutrition course offers all of the information needed to prepare you, fuel you, and help you recover from endurance activity. The Nail Your Nutrition course has modules on macronutrient distribution, hydration and electrolytes, endurance needs for female athletes, vegans, and vegetarians, nutrients of concern, supplements, tips for triathletes and endurance, ultra-endurance runners, tips for relative energy deficiency, and more. We also include case studies to tie everything together, as well as videos and downloadable handouts. Plus, you have lifetime access to the course. That's right, you have access forever with updated scientific sports nutrition guidelines, practical tips for how to implement them, and you also have access to a private community where you can collaborate with other course members. To join the course and get started today, head to nailyournutrition.podia.com. That's nailyournutrition.podia.com or head to the link in the show notes. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Today, I am turning the tables and interviewing Sarah, talking all about how she BQ'd on her second marathon. So awesome. I can't wait to dive in. I know a lot of us have that as a goal, myself included, and want to hear how she did it. She's an amazing runner, and I can't hear to, can't wait to hear all about it. So, Sarah, first of all, how's it going? How's your day? Hi, Marita. It's great for a Friday. I think we're getting snow this weekend, so I'm just trying to get stuff done around the house so we can play outside, hopefully. That sounds fun. It's in the 70s here, so <laughs> I am jealous. <laughs> uh, well, I'm kind of jealous of that, though, because I'm a warm person, a warm weather person now. Yeah, it's hard. It's a, it's a hard balance. Well, let's dive in. I am so excited to hear all about this. Take it away, and I'll pop in when I have questions. So to set the scene, I never – I didn't actually run Boston, so <laughs> newsflash, I did qualify, but Cameron ended up coming like two weeks before the Boston Marathon. That was her due date. It wasn't a surprise or anything, but the timing just never worked out. So I'm still on a quest to run Boston. But I did have a lot of success in the difference between my first and second marathon, which my first marathon was the fall of 2016. And my second marathon was the spring of 2017. So it was a short time period, but I PR'd by 10 minutes. 
So we thought it would be helpful just to kind of review things I did for that and things that helped me qualify for Boston because as you can expect, nutrition played a big role. How many races, like run races, have you done before then? Like many halves or 10Ks? Yeah, so I've probably done like 10 half marathons. So I I was familiar with the distance and I had done long runs too, just running with Ed. So context, my husband used to coach cross country and track at a division one school and he was a college runner and he sort of got me into running. I, I was a high school and college athlete, but I was never a runner. Um, I remember the gym coaches always saying, oh, you should come out for track. And I was like, people actually run for fun. Like, No, thank you. <laughs> now look at me now. But um, yeah, so Ed sort of propelled that interest and I really grew to love running. And he, he had done marathons. He has, he's done Boston like three or four times. But he was doing distance races and I would run with him even if I didn't run the race. So I had long distance training under my belt and I had done a bunch of halves and it was always on my bucket list to do a full marathon. So yeah, fast forward to the fall of 2016 and that's when I finally made the jump and I ran the Savannah Rock and Roll Marathon, which I know, Marita, you have done the half. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was the first one I wanted to do. I liked the idea of a rock and roll marathon just because, I don't know, I thought it would be fun and there was music and I really didn't know what to expect for my first 26.2. They're really well supported too. They are. And it was like really planned out. My parents have a house in Georgia that's close to Savannah. It's not in Savannah, but it's close. So that made logistics easy. We didn't have to get a hotel and transportation to and from the race was easy. So it all just made sense. And I had a pretty good race. I mean, it was fun. And I would say after finishing that race, I I got the marathon bug. I was ready to do another one. And I probably realized that I could have gone out a little bit faster and I still had some I still had some juice left in me when I finished. So I think all of that propelled me to kind of take my next marathon training cycle more seriously whereas the first one was just like, "Oh, I want to finish. I just want to say I did it and then move on." Um whereas training for my second marathon was kind of like, "Okay, I know what I'm capable of now. I want to do a little bit better." So the second marathon was actually out in Utah. And it sounds random, but the timing worked out. My husband had a work trip out there, and I am on a quest to run races in different states. So that was a great opportunity for me to go to Utah for the first time and train out there. Now, planning it was a little difficult because obviously out in Utah, we were in Ogden, which is really in the mountains, and there was going to be elevation there. So I couldn't exactly train in those conditions, but... I did the best I could and got out there a couple days early, and I actually don't think the elevation affected me as much as I thought it would. What about, like, altitude? I look at St. George, and I I know that's also a downhill race like Ogden, but I worry about the altitude coming from sea level. Did that bother you? Yeah, I was nervous about that. I really was, and I almost think – and there's no science behind this, but I almost think – The race was going downhill, and we're going to get into the actual logistics of the race, but it was really you start at the top of a mountain, really, and you just slowly make your way down. So I almost think going down slowly kind of canceled out the altitude, if that makes sense. I do remember being constantly thirsty as soon as we landed out there. I just – I was – 
drinking so much, but I was still, I couldn't get hydrated. Like my pee was still really yellow and I was like starting to freak out like, oh my gosh, I'm having trouble adapting. But yeah, it all worked out. That's awesome. Love it. So let's talk about what was different between your two marathons. What did you do differently? So that's a great prompt right there. So I guess kind of like I mentioned, you go into your first marathon and it's it's exciting, but it's also you're just nervous. You don't know what to expect. There's a fear that maybe you won't finish or what does it look like if you hit the wall? I mean, you hear about all of these things and your training and maybe you experience some of them, maybe you don't, but it's like, well, what if I don't like the fuel on the course or what if I have some GI issues or what if I just can't finish or what if I my shoe falls off or I have to keep stopping on the course to go to the bathroom. There's all of these questions. And so I was a little uneasy, but I was excited. And my husband actually did the half marathon that day that I did the full. So after he ran the half, he found me and he kind of ran in with me for the last few miles, which was really cool. But your second marathon, at least in my experience, is a lot different from the first because you have that confidence. You have that lived experience of knowing what to expect. Whether No matter how your first race was, you have memories and experience there. So you can just remind yourself that you've done it before, you're capable, and you kind of know what you're – yeah, what you're capable of, where your faults were, what you could work on specifically between marathon cycles, whereas in the first marathon training cycle, it's kind of like, just finish, do your long run, follow this plan. And in the second cycle, I feel like I was a lot more able to listen to my body and just trust it. Like if I say I had an interval run or a long run on my agenda and I just didn't go as far or as long as I was supposed to, Rather than kind of freak out or see things in black and white or say, this is going to ruin my whole race, I was kind of like, it's okay. You're fine. You've done this before. You're going to get to race day and you're going to finish the race no matter what. Like it's not, it's not as big of a deal as you're making it out to be. So I feel like I was able to talk myself down a lot and I also just had a lot more confidence. And as both Marita and I can attest to, and we've talked about this a lot, about how mental toughness plays into so much of the endurance mentality that that just really helped keep me calm and keep me motivated throughout training. I just knew when to push myself, when to hold back, when to take a rest day, what to eat. By that time, I had pretty much perfected my nutrition plan. So yeah, there was a lot of things in my favor. And a a big tip I have for those who do want to qualify for Boston, or even obviously you probably want to do better in your second and your third, your subsequent marathons than your first, improve your time, is pick a friendly course. Pick somewhere that may work in your favor. So for me, it was going downhill. all, And it wasn't a steep downhill, but it was just gradually downhill, which I felt like especially starting at altitude the way it did was really advantageous. Did that hurt your quads at all? I know that's a common complaint. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, There was some some pain more so after the fact. During it wasn't wasn't huge. I wasn't focusing on that. But I did – and this was Ed's suggestion at the time. He was kind of my – my unofficial running coach throughout my training cycle. He was like, you need to practice running downhill. And I honestly wouldn't have even thought of that. So I was so glad he did. There was a, 
hill right near our neighborhood at the time. And we would just run, rather than running hill repeats up a hill, we would just run repeats downhill. So I could get used to the way that felt on my muscles and have my quads adjust to it and kind of get used to it and like relax my pace and lower my arms. So that muscle memory really helped me too. Nice. Okay. So one thing that I think was really helpful for me, and I think a lot of runners feel this way, is finding a training group or people who, and I think it's really important that you train with people who are faster than you. I was a little intimidated to do this because it's, you're thinking, you know, I, I don't want to hold them up or I don't want them to be waiting on me. But honestly, the competition makes you better. It makes you more confident and it pushes you to be better and maybe faster than you realized you could be or, or do more things than you realized you were capable of. So finding a training group was really helpful. At the time, we lived just north of Charlotte, North Carolina, and there was a great training group in town. It was so convenient. So my weekend long runs, I would go with them and it was men and women together and they would, you know, you had some people who were running 18 to 20 miles. You had some people who were doing 12. So you could kind of just choose what routes you wanted to do. And there was always company no matter what. So that was super helpful. I think too, is it just kind of takes that mental load off of where am I going to run? How are we, how fast are we going to go? Is it going to be supported? How am I going to get water? It's just like one less thing to stress about when you're training with a group. Exactly. And especially this might be the dietitian in me, but I'm always interested in how are other people fueling? What are they doing? So Mm -hmm. it also provided great insight to maybe there was something new I could try or how are they taking it in? Where are they holding their fuel? So when you're running, it's kind of always troubleshooting to figure out what's going to work best for you. And and these things change over time and they change based on the weather. So you kind of always want to be tweaking that. So I would say that was really helpful too. On top of the fact that you don't always want to wake up early and run 20 miles by yourself. So that company and motivation was, was helpful. And I feel fortunate that some of the time when I had those long runs, Ed would just hop on a bike and ride beside me. So I had that company if I wasn't Mm -hmm. with the training group. So support is a key factor, especially if you are doing these long runs or you have goals in mind, you have to put in the time and you really want to have a support system. You want to have people who understand your goal. Like non-runner friends are great, but they don't always understand why you're not going to go out for an extra drink at 11 p.m. because you have a 6 a.m. run the next day. So I think finding your tribe, whatever that looks like, and people who understand your goal and who can support you is really important. And I think, too, it's you get intimidated, and those running groups are not usually very intimidating. I think every training group I've ever joined or done a random long run with, everyone's been so nice and and asks you questions and wants to get to know you. Like, they want you in there. It's not intimidating. It's not going to be like, you're not fast enough. We're going to drop you. It's not like that. Same, right? I feel the same way. Like I went in thinking like, oh no, what are these people going to think of me? Or I'm doing all of this wrong or they're not going to wait for me. But really it was just, there was a Facebook group and it was like, who is going long this weekend? Or I have six miles. Does someone want to join me after work? Or I'm doing a a. 5am interval workout. Who wants in? So it was always, people always wanted to be there to help each other because we're all in the same boat, right? We all want to get better and we enjoy running. We're doing it for a reason. And mm-hmm. it's just that tribe. Yeah, makes a big difference. Speaking of speed work, that was definitely something I incorporated more in my second training cycle because I realized the importance of it, of those fast twitch muscle fibers and and sort of just muscle memory training my body. 
um, increasing that VO2 max. And ideally, you want to mirror your course if possible. So again, I mentioned we did some downhill sprints, which I know people in our neighborhood were looking at us like, what is going on? But you do what you got to do. Speed work was essential. I think I did one workout a week. There might have been a couple weeks where I had two workouts. I don't know. I don't think I could do that now with two kids and just being how much, however much older I am, four years older than I was at the time. But whatever works for your schedule. I think it would be helpful too for people to get their running form checked out. So a lot of running stores have treadmills that you can run on and they can look at your form, let you know if you need different sneakers or anything like that. But this is just a base thing that if you're running in the wrong sneakers for your shoe or foot or your form is just needs a few tweaks, that can make you a lot more efficient. I know Marita talked about in our triathlon episode, just switching bikes made a world of difference for her once she kind of understood and educated herself on the benefits. I think it can work the same way in running, finding a shoe that's comfortable that you're not going to get injured in and just making sure your form is is okay. I know for me, I have a tendency to keep my arms up and I always had to remind myself to lower them and lean forward and it was just a work in progress. But the more I practiced it, I did notice that I was more efficient and I didn't really have to quote unquote try as hard. Like it just felt more natural. So I have two speed work questions. Sorry. <laughs> I just realized that you uh, went right into running form. Okay. So how did you – did you always run your speed work at a certain pace? I know Ed was like your unassigned coach. Yeah. Was it always like the BQ pace or was it faster or slower? Or did you try to run close to whatever that pace – I mean, that pace must be at least 8, right? I oh, know it's it's less than that. It's like 7.30 for a 3.30. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. So for our, for the speed work that I did, so every week was a little different. Like I, for some reason, I love pyramid workouts. I feel like some people don't like them, but it's just like the little goals that I can work up to that I liked. We, we had a track and I honestly did most of my speed work on a track because it was easy to measure and I could pace myself pretty easily. I think there were some intervals where I was trying to go sub marathon pace just to kind of get my threshold and get used to that feeling when you're out of breath or that it almost hurts in your lungs. Like I was trying to get used to that. And then the longer speed works was probably at marathon pace. I I honestly don't remember. I could probably find the workout somewhere, but it was definitely out of my comfort zone. Like it was challenging, but after doing it, I always felt so good. Did you do the Yasso 800s, like that marathon predictor? Did you guys do those? No. No. The, like, cause he, isn't he like the runner's world? Or Yasso. Editor? Yeah. Yeah. And you can like, you do them and then that's like your predictor if you do them at like max. Yeah. I don't know. I was just wondering. Um, How did you not get caught up in the pace and time you were doing? Like, was that a problem? Because yeah. you were going in thinking like, I'm going to try to to Boston qualify, right? Right. So I went in saying I was going to stay with a 335 group. And so there was a pace group. And that's kind of another tip I had is if you have a goal in mind, again, finding your tribe or having a group to stay with is helpful. I ended up passing them after like mile eight or nine, which was like a lot sooner than I planned. But I just felt so good that I didn't want to keep holding back. But I and I have a blog post on this that I talk about 
at some point, I just couldn't do math anymore. So I think I was pretty much on target for my goal of sub 335 the whole time. But I was trying to do the math and look at my watch and do my pace. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to make it. I'm like going to be below 340. I need to hurry up. And I, it's just like, I think we've all been in that place where we can't do math. And I shouldn't have mm-hmm. been thinking about it at that point. But I did find myself getting caught up. But then I just like took a look around me and I saw all these beautiful mountains. And I just had to remind myself, like, just run the race you're in, run the mile you're in and stop thinking about it. And then when we got to the final mile, I was like, oh, I don't know what I was worrying about the whole time. Like I'm, I'm on pace. I'm fine. Granted at that point, I was like, I just have to maintain this. And it was really hard, but yeah, I think that's, that's a hard challenge. I think as runners that we just get really caught up in pace and time. Yeah. And especially like for your long run, did you try to run that pretty easy or did you throw like a workouts in there too? Not usually. And Ed was really adamant about like, just do it for time. Like just, be on your feet for three hours, be on your feet for three and a half hours um, type thing. And I, of course, I would be like looking at my watch, like how far have I gone? Um, and I would be on trails a lot of the time, which I honestly think that helped me for training because the roads yeah. are faster. So that was kind of another tip as if you're training on trails, the road's going to seem a lot easier. So my GPS was losing signal all the time. So anyway, I say that to say that it was never accurate for how far I was running, but I knew how long I was running. And if I could stay on my feet for three and a half hours and feel okay after, like I knew I would be able to do the, do the race. But did you keep your pace pretty slow for those long runs? Um, I don't think it was like, like I didn't treat it like recovery day or anything like that. I just kind of went with what was comfortable. What felt good about on that day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's hard when you set a goal, like a, a pace time goal, at least for me, it's hard to let go of that watch and be like, oh, I didn't hit that interval or, oh, that long run was, you know, 9.45 pace. Like, I'm not going to be able to hit that. Like, it's hard, especially when you set such a big goal to be cute to, to turn that off. Did you find that, that that you struggled with that at all? Yeah, I think part of it is that I was afraid to admit the goal to myself. Like, I was kind of almost like, oh, man, if I say this out loud and I, like, don't qualify – then yeah. what are people going to think? What did, did I fail? I mean, I still ran a marathon. Did I fail? So I think in the back of my head, it was always kind of like, oh, it'll be nice to qualify, but like, it's not a big deal if I don't. Right. Did you share that on social media? Did you share that you were trying to be cute? I don't know if I did. Or on your honest, I don't, I don't think I ever put the words out there. I think I like talked about, oh, like I'd love to run Boston someday, but I really was putting all of the focus on. I feel like if you have a goal, like you tend to look beyond the race. So if I was only yeah. thinking about Boston, like I feel like I wouldn't wouldn't have been thinking about the race in Utah. Right. And all of my effort was going towards the race in Utah. So there was a small part of me that was like, oh, like it would be really cool to run sub 335 and qualify for Boston. But if I don't do that, I still just want to beat my time from the fall. Right. But I love that you're focusing on the marathon that you're in and not the one that you're trying to get into. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's great. So along with speed work, another thing that I really incorporated into the second training cycle was core work. And I think as runners, at least me, I don't like core work. I hate it. It's always that like five minutes after a workout that I don't want to devote to doing core or stretching. Like I just want to be done and I just want to eat. But (laughs) I really had to 
be diligent. And I think Ed and I would just do that, do it together four to five minutes, four to five times a week. Like I'm not someone who's going to spend like 20 minutes doing core. It's, it's just something I don't enjoy, but I had a few YouTube videos that I would do. And I really do think strengthening, and I'm not saying this for vanity purposes. I'm saying, I think strengthening those muscles just really makes more improvements than you'll realize, right? Because it's going to help your posture, but it's going to help your running form. And it's going to give you more endurance because you're not, the way I see it is that kind of that strength is like more equalized throughout your whole body. So um, it did keep me free for in, from injury, um, just doing core work, doing speed work, stretching, foam rolling, all of the things that they tell you to do. I really did try to focus on it. And when I'm focusing on something, I tend to like really go all in. So Rita can appreciate this one. But when I was really preparing to have a B-back, I was all in on that. I would do the exercises they told me to do every single day. I would sit in the correct posture. I would read books. I would do the <laughs> hypnobirthing meditations. Like I was all in. So it was kind of like this. It was, I don't want to say I was seeing things in black and white, but it was kind of just like when when you want to do really well with something, you're. I just didn't want to leave anything on the table and feel like, oh, I could have, if had I done this, maybe it would have been different type thing. Well, and I think everybody builds up like core work and injury prevention mobility to be like, I need to do half an hour every right. day. But like you said, like four, five, 10 minutes a day is better than a 30 to 45 minute session once a week. Mm -hmm. So, and, it, and that takes, you can do that while you're watching TV at the end of, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily have to be right after your run. It's nice to get that out of the way though. Right. But. Yeah. Whatever fits in. And it's so funny because at the time I felt like I was so busy, but now that I have two kids and run a business, like now what is, know what, what, what is busy? Right. Right. <laughs> now I know what being busy is. Uh, so for, for subsequent marathon trainings, I'll have to probably get creative and how yeah. to fit that in doing it at night. Like you said, Marita, or cutting a run short just to fit that in because it did teach me how important that, that part is. Yeah. Hey, that's what Meb does. He's like, if you got to fit it in, take a mile off. So yeah. if Meb can do it, then we got to do it too. Right. <laughs> okay. So tell us about nutrition, what we always want to hear about. Yes. Nutrition. So I almost feel like I was like a little guinea pig for myself for how I would talk with clients because I really did experiment with a lot of things. And I think I've said this on a previous podcast that I feel really fortunate. Like I have a stomach of steel pretty much, except there is one instance where Gatorade just gave me the worst cramps. So I don't do Gatorade. But other than that, I am I can pretty much eat whatever before a run and feel okay. And I can take things during a run and feel okay. But that being said, I didn't, I didn't want to go in with that loosey-goosey mentality. I wanted to kind of have it nailed down. Like these are the fuels I'm taking and I'm going to take it every so often. Like every five miles that that was kind of my thing like every five miles that was an interval for me to do it um one thing with nutrition that I've kind of always followed this but whenever I'm hungry I eat always 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 even if it's not a planned meal or snack even if I had a snack an hour ago like I will never turn my hunger off or try to ignore it so especially when you're in a deep endurance training cycle like that hunger is a signal. So I feel like just making sure I was getting adequate energy was first and foremost the most important thing. Because we talk about, yeah, like for carbs, make sure you're getting enough and make sure you're getting enough protein. But if you're not getting enough calories overall, it's 
it's not going to matter. So I think I had that kind of in my right pocket. I, I understood what to do for that. I did before the race, I did carb load. So I was, and when you're carb loading, you do have to be decreasing your workouts and your exercise and spending less time on your feet so your body can actually load up on those carbs. So I I think my taper week, I only did like eight miles. Like it was pretty low, but I was still eating as much as I would had I been training more. I think that worked in my favor and that was pretty advantageous. I was just eating more of every food group. So obviously more carbohydrates, but when you have that high of energy needs, you're just going to be eating more of everything. So I was eating more fat, more protein, more carbs. Of course, I wasn't thinking about it like that. I was just thinking about eating more food, but it just translates to eating more of each group. Another thing that was really important was even if I wasn't hungry, I would always eat something after a run. Even if it was like a four mile easy run, I just saw those opportunities as if I'm doing a four mile easy run, say every day, and I never refueled after that at the end of a week, that's a, that's a big deficit in calories. So I was just refueling after every run, hungry or not, long run or not, intensive run or not. There was just, there was always a, a post run snack. And I really think that helped keep me injury free. That helped keep my glycogen stores high and that just helped keep my energy and motivation levels constant because it takes a toll on you, not only physically, but mentally when you're going through a training cycle. So I know we talk about this like with our clients and what we tell them to do. Would you wake up pretty early and then go out to meet your training group or tell us about like the logistics of that? Yeah. So at the time I, I wasn't fully working for myself. I had a job in like a clinic where I was seeing some patients. It was still pretty flexible. I remember doing a lot of runs at night, to be honest, like during the week. I'm I'm not an early morning runner. I think we've talked about this. Um, I, I did on the weekends because I did want to simulate the race start time and I needed to practice eating before a long run and I wanted to run with the running group. But during the week, I, I think I did like 6 p.m. runs. It's like my favorite time of day to run and yeah. workouts after work, things like that. But I would have an afternoon snack before that. Okay. That was my question. So you'd have a snack and then like two hours later run or later – and then just have afterwards have dinner? Yeah. And then okay. like a snack after dinner always, like a bedtime yeah. snack. But if it was the morning, like say I was meeting the running group, at, I think we would meet at like 6.30 or 7. I would get up an hour before. I would always have coffee and I would have oatmeal with a banana. Like I would have at least 30 grams of carbs sometimes more pretty sufficient. And then I would have the gels or whatever carbs I was taking with me. So plenty of time to digest that and then be ready to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so funny. I'm the same way. I used to run in the afternoon, evening. (laughs) Now it's like, that's never going to happen ever again. (laughs) I know. Now like the afternoons are just like after nap, there's no time to myself. It's like you have to get ready for dinner and Mm -hmm. it's just too hectic now. Yeah. So if you don't have kids, that's what Sarah and I both used to do is have an afternoon snack, go out to run, and then eat dinner for your recovery. So if you are able to still do that, that's what we recommend. If not, um, fit it in when you can. Right. <laughs> so yeah, so that that overall nutrition plan worked really well for me. I'll, I'll get into kind of like how I fuel during the race and long run shortly. But in terms of hydration, I really did try to stay on top of it, especially because 
I at that time was living in a hotter environment, Charlotte, which is pretty humid. And I was training to run at altitude. So I knew that I just had to be extra on top of hydration, especially the whole week before. I feel like I was constantly in the bathroom. I was like waking up at night to pee, which isn't ideal. But at the same point, it was kind of like I couldn't take a day off from that. And for those who are wondering, the real the reason that when you're going to altitude, it's extra important to hydrate is that you're losing more water than you realize through your breath and you're having to adjust your breathing in the altitude environment. So in terms of another tip that something that I focused on that helped me was I actually took more days off in this training cycle. And I know some people are like, what? How did how did you get faster and do that? But yes, I'm here to tell you it's true. I took pretty much two full days off a week. I was not running five days a week. I always did a day of cross training and that either looked like yoga or the bike or the elliptical. At that point in time, I really hated the bike. Now I love it thanks to Peloton. But at that point, it wasn't enjoyable for me. So it was honestly usually the elliptical or yoga. Sometimes it was hot yoga. Um, But I realized that for my body, more is not always better. And this may be a person-to-person thing, but I think it's really important to explore this because – We've talked about overtraining before. We've talked about relative energy deficiency. And if you are training too much and you're not replenishing that or it's just impossible for you to eat that much, you're going to have to find what your happy medium is. So for me, that was like four days of running a week and only 40 to 45 miles a week, which is actually pretty low for marathon training. I feel like too – I mean, I I hear that number. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's so much. I don't know if I've ever gotten – super close to maybe like 30 miles has been like the longest yeah, but, but you've had like triathlon and cycling in there too true and I I feel like every time I unless I have like built up really slowly a big volume or base every time I try to jump up to more than five days a week I always get injured like I, there's just a happy medium like you said for each person mm-hmm. and it just depends on what your threshold is yeah and I think that's a message that People aren't hearing. They're hearing, you know, to get yeah. faster. More, more, more. more. Right. You got to do more and then you have to add lifting in and there's just so much you have to do and then you have to eat clean and I'm using quotations and eat perfectly and eat only vegetables and lean proteins and only carbs and no fun foods. And I'm here to tell you none of that was true. I mean, I ate lots of fun foods. I pretty much ate ice cream every night and I only ran four days a week. I did one day of speed training like I talked about. I did core. I did the running groups. But for me, that's that's what worked well. So you did one day of speed work, one long run, and then those other two were those like recovery slower days? So the day after my long run, actually, no, Ed did not like me taking the day after my long run off completely because he wanted me to just get used to running on tired legs. So that was usually like a mid distance. So for example, if I was running like 15 miles on a Saturday, Sunday would be like eight or nine miles. Just yeah. easy. Mm-hmm. But easy, and yeah. What, is the, what did the rest of your week typically look like? And then Monday was a cross-train day. I think Tuesday was off. And I might have switched those. Monday might have been off Tuesday cross-training. Wednesday run, Thursday speed, Friday. Friday would be something easy, I think, leading into Saturday. So kind of like mesh together to simulate running on tired legs. Yeah. Yeah, that was a big thing. And I know we talked about that with Courtney following like the Hal Higdon plan um, or the Hanson plan. Yeah. There's so many out there that that just seemed to work well for me. So I honestly, it was just a mental load that I didn't, I had a general flexible plan to follow. 
that Ed was kind of like, I don't want you to stress out. I'm going to make this really flexible. So if you want to do an 11 mile run, you can, but if you don't want to, then you can do this many minutes cross training and add on tomorrow or something like that. And for me, that, that was great. Did you, did you like dread that run on Sunday or was it pretty? It was mentally hard to get into it because, you know, when you finish your run Saturday, you're like, oh, I'm good. Like I got it because it's almost like the whole week you're like leading up to the long run, right? Like that's what you're thinking yeah. about. It's like, oh, I have 15 this weekend. Next weekend I have 16 and I have 17 and you're slowly making your way up and that's kind of the peak. And then, so yeah, Sunday was like harder mentally for sure. I would not get up early. I would sleep in. That would be something that Ed would hop on the bike with me and just kind of like go alongside. And it was just no, no yeah, no time constraints or anything, just get the miles, do what you need to do. Yeah. Would you like save like your music or a good podcast or anything for long runs or runs? Yes. I would listen to tons of podcasts and I actually really liked just like slow runs on trails when I could do it. Cause like I could zone out and just not worry as much about time yeah. or distance. Cause I was in nature. And I also mentioned before, just kind of like the muscle, the logistical work that's important, the foam rolling. I took a bunch of Epsom salt baths. I'm a big believer in that. And just for relaxation and self-care. So self-care is so important when you're putting in all of that time for marathon training, you guys. So figure out what it is that that you need. If it's like going out to dinner after a long run to get your favorite pizza or whatever that is, do it. Go to your favorite ice cream shop. Make sure you buy your favorite snacks from the grocery store. Like I would load up on granola. That was like my thing with yogurt to make sure like a protein carb balance that was my favorite yogurt with granola so I was really trying to institute that and give me things to look forward to and also help help you be compliant with all you need to eat the last thing I'll say just about training in general like training for a marathon where you're trying to not even necessarily qualify for Boston but just like better your time I talked earlier choose the right course right so whether it's a downhill course um, try Try something that will work in your favor. If you like flat, if you like, I don't know, pretty scenery, if you like city versus rural, whatever that is, um, obviously choose a Boston qualifying course if that is your goal. And I think this one is so, so important that don't overwhelm yourself and don't train during busy times of life. So I know, I think you talked about this too, Marita. It's just if you're postpartum or you have family or life commitments or it's just an especially busy season of work. For example, if you're an accountant, please don't train for a marathon in the spring. Like that's going to be hell for you. So really take that into consideration. For me, when I actually ran the Detroit marathon, that was a fall marathon. I wasn't out to BQ. I wasn't, I wasn't even out to beat a marathon time. That was just kind of my first postpartum marathon. But I had something every single week in the fall. Like I had my sister's wedding. I had my cousin's wedding. I had a press trip. I had fancy. There was so much travel there and it was so stressful. But at the same time, I was, I was kind of just relaxed with training. Cause at that point I was like, I know what my body can handle, but that would not have been a good race to try to qualify for Boston or PR with, because there's just so much other stuff going on that takes that mental energy it takes to do that is going to take away from your physical energy and also your recovery because you're never going to rest. Yay. All right. Well, we're going to turn this into a two-parter. Next episode, Sarah is going to talk all about race week, race day, and how she actually be cute. So stay tuned for that. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget to leave a review. If you leave a typed up review, we raffle them off monthly and you get a free 30-minute phone call with Sarah or I to talk about nutrition. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast as well. It really helps other people find us. And then we always land in your podcast app of choice (laughs) every single week and or other week. So we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. That wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review so others can find it more easily. You can also stay in touch with us by joining our Facebook group, Nutrition for Runners. If you have any requests for future episode topics and more, email us at nailyournutritioncourse1 at gmail.com. Happy fueling! Happy fueling!